0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to the All About Everest podcast. And today's episode is the 10 historical events and expeditions that have shaped Mount Everest to what it is today. I'm really sorry that this episode is late as well as the next one. What it really comes down to is that I'm not always the most open about it, but I really struggle with seasonal affective disorder, also known as SAD or SAD. And what it is, is that it is seasonal depression. It usually hits me in September when the sun just disappears. And here I am living in Montana, and we really only have sun like two months out of the year. I've learned how to manage it over the years, but it seems like the older I get, the harder it hits me every year. And this year, instead of like a progression, it hit me like overnight. And so I've had to kind of bounce back and kind of recalibrate because it threw me into this like huge funk. I manage my SAD with um, a light box I really pick up on vitamin B and vitamin D and I try to get outside at least 15 minutes per day. Usually like at lunchtime, just to soak in whatever sunshine there is. But this year was a little bit different than normal. And so I apologize ahead of time SAD or seasonal affective disorder is absolutely real. And there are so many people out there that get it. Um, People, you know, a lot of people think, oh, it's the winter blues or, oh, it's the changing of the seasons. But for some people, it is a true problem. And so if you're someone out there that struggles with SAD, I really urge you to get help because there is help available. Most physicians know about SAD and the struggle is absolutely real. Hello, all you wonderful listeners. I get asked two questions a lot of the time. The first question I get asked is, how do I find the time to get outside so much when I am so busy? And the second question I get asked a lot is, how can people get outside more? I started podcasting, writing, and blogging because I was super passionate about helping people get outside and enjoy the great outdoors, regardless of where they were at physically, where they lived, their financial means, their health. And so because I've been getting asked those questions a lot more lately, I decided to start the free five day, get outside more challenge. It'll be a rolling challenge it starts the second Monday of each month currently open to enrollment. You can find the link in the episode description. I hope to see you guys there again. It's absolutely free. And did I mention that there's going to be homework prizes? Come spend five days with me and help improve your life. It's as simple as getting outside at least 15 minutes a day. And guess what? There's absolutely no pitch. So go ahead, click the link. Hello, this is just a little post show edit. One of the listeners brought this up to me and I absolutely agree with it. She recommended that I put in a little disclaimer because at the end of this episode, around the last five minutes, I use the S like Sam swear word. And I apologize ahead of time. I don't often think that that is a vulgar word. And so again, I apologize. If this is a word that you find vulgar, you can skip the last five minutes of this episode. And thank you again to our listener to recommending that I put in this disclaimer. I greatly appreciate it. I do try to keep this podcast as clean as possible. I was trying to make a point. And again, I apologize ahead of time. Before I get to the main topic of this podcast episode, we have an Everest update. I love those. And it's the time of year where they start coming in because right now is the fall season. We have the winter season coming up. And then usually in March, it picks up with Everest updates for the spring season. And we already know that Yost, who we interviewed, oh gosh, a couple of months ago, we already know that he's going to be there between December and February to summit Mount Everest. And hopefully we'll interview him again, this time from Everest Base Camp. So the first. Everest update that we've had in a while. And there's a lot of rumors going on going around about this story, but Conrad Anker, Jimmy Chen are working with elite exped, which is Nim's days team. And he's probably there with them. I would speculate, but they are mounting an expedition from the North side of Mount Everest. I believe from my understanding is that they are recording a documentary that has to do with skiing and that Jim Morrison might be involved. He is Hillary Nelson's uh, significant other. Hillary Nelson perished last year on Manaslu, but they have this fall expedition planned and everybody went to go into China, and Jimmy Chen and Conrad Anker were denied visas. From my understanding, that's all been sorted out. They also have their climbing pyramids from the north side, which since 2020, China's done some weird things. They've, you know, denied tourist visas, and then they said, oh, we're going to open it. Oh, no, we're not. Oh, we're going to open Mount Everest and give out permits. Oh no, we're not. Oh, we're canceling all of the permits for the rest of the year. And we don't know if we're gonna open for 2024. It's probably a political thing, who knows. But as far as I know from my understanding and talking to some of the people that I know is that this expedition is happening Conrad, Jimmy, Jim, and Elite Exped. They're all involved and they've all been granted visas and they're currently in Tibet right now. It's going to be interesting what this documentary is going to be, if they're going to be successful. I love a good Everest documentary. You guys already know that. So that's something to look forward to. And there's a lot of big names involved with this documentary. And that is it for housekeeping and updates. And now on with the rest of the episode. Today's episode is the 10 expeditions and historical events that have shaped Mount Everest. And the first one is the 1924 expedition of George Mallory and Andrew Sandy Irvine. So this was George Mallory's third attempt to summit Mount Everest. This was the highest that he had ever gotten, but they did not reach the summit. Or as far as we know, they did not reach it. It's highly unlikely because of the gear that they had access to back in the day. They didn't have fixed ropes or anything like that or support. It's very unlikely that they reached the summit. We do know that they perished. The body of George Mallory was found 75 years later by Conrad Anker and his team on May 1st, 1999. And when they found the body of George Mallory, they thought that maybe this will give us some answers. There's the infamous camera that George Mallory and Sandy Irvine had with them that has not yet been found and they have not found Sandy's body either. However, this expedition, even though it was considered a failure because they didn't reach the top, it wasn't really a failure because it was the highest that anyone had ever gotten in a summit push. And it just showed that it could happen, that it wasn't just some dream, that it was possible. What was different from their expedition was that they were using bottled oxygen, and at the time this was considered like a crazy idea that someone would even use bottled oxygen to try to get to the top. And over the years, of course, there's been controversy about, you know, is it pure mountaineering if you use bottled oxygen? But looking back a hundred years later, using oxygen is kind of the norm when back during this expedition, it was considered an insane and crazy idea. The second historical event that shaped Mount Everest is the very first summit on May twenty-nine, one thousand 1953, by Tenzing Norgay and Sir Edmund Hillary. Because of George Mallory's last failed attempt, they knew it was possible that you could reach the top. They had much better gear and they summited with bottled oxygen. It almost wasn't Hillary and Norgay that summited, but by chance, they were the ones who were able to reach the summit on that day over 75 years ago. May 29th is known as Mount Everest day, also known as Hillary Norgay day or Norgay Hillary day. And it's celebrated throughout Nepal. Tenzing Norgay didn't know when his actual birthday was, so he chose May 29th to be his official birthday. And there's all sorts of things that happen on May 29th every year, including the Mount Everest marathon, because Tenzing Norgay and Sir Edmund Hillary were able to reach the summit. It opened up the door to share that achievement with other people down the road. And now there are people who summit every single year because they made it possible. They were the ones, that were able to succeed and show the world, yes, it could be done. Mallory and Irvine showed that it was possible, but Hillary and Norgay showed that you could be successful in doing it. 1996 was a year that changed Mount Everest and the climbing culture. So it hadn't been very long that. Mount Everest had been open to commercialized climbers. And 1996, not only was it the deadliest year, but at the time it was the deadliest day and the deadliest season. In 1996, 15 people died total that whole year, 12 of them during the spring climbing season and eight of them between the 10th and 11th of May. Most people are pretty familiar with the 1996 Everest disaster. I've done episodes on it before. I did one a couple weeks ago and I did one last year, but there were many contributing factors to why people died. There was the weather, there were issues with the fixed ropes, Um, because of the bottlenecking, And because the fixed ropes took forever to put up people summited late and there were inexperienced climbers. There were obviously other things as well, but the weather and the late summiting were probably the two biggest contributing factors. And so many lessons were learned from that spring season because until that year there weren't that many people normally on that mountain and because people realized oh well if you had money you can climb you can get to the top that's what they were doing the inexperience of some of the climbers i think did contribute especially to the death of Bruce Herod, who died on May 25th of that year. But I think a lot of it had to do mainly with poor planning, the unexpected weather, and the bottlenecking. And so nowadays, looking back at then versus now, There's a specific team that their whole job is to fix the ropes. People don't summit late in the day and the weather prediction services have gotten so much better since 1996. So ultimately it did change how people climb today and how expeditions are led on Mount Everest. As Skip Horner said in an interview I did a couple weeks ago, it's the lessons learned that are the most important. In 2006, David Sharp summited Mount Everest and he died. So many people die on Mount Everest. So you may be wondering, well, why are you talking about him? And it's because he died on Mount Everest and it became a controversial topic because people were questioning why no one helped him. So David Sharp was without a team. He was without oxygen and he was attempting a solo summit of Mount Everest. As far as we know, he reached the top, but on the way back down, he was compromised and he just wasn't able to make it. There were a lot of different teams that passed him, including the Hymex team and the Turkish team. But the person who got called out for not stopping to help him was Mark Inglis. He was a New Zealander. He was a double amputee and Sir Edmund Hillary called him out why he didn't stop and save David Sharp. Well, there were hundreds of other people up there, but the world chose and Sir Edmund Hillary chose to focus on Mark Inglis. The thing is, and you know, since 2006, there has been so much talk and conversation about helping people, you know, when they're dying up there on, you know, on their way down on their way up, it doesn't matter and why people aren't helping well, they are, but the controversial part of it and, and many, and just so you know, many people stopped to try to help David Sharp, uh, give him oxygen, give him clothing. Again, many people stopped, but you know, when you're up there, it is so dangerous sometimes to offer aid. Some of the things that go into that decision-making are, well, if I help this person, am I going to die? Is this person past help? Several people who had passed David Sharp thought that he was dead and then someone passed him a couple hours later and he had revived a little bit. And it's just one of those questions that really, I mean, that are controversial. Could you, would you, or should you stop when someone is in trouble on these huge 8,000ers? Jerry McDonald stopped on K2. He stopped to help two Taiwanese who were hanging upside down in the fixed ropes and he died helping them. This year on K2, Kristen Harilla, I know I'm pronouncing that. um, She was singled out by the world, by the media, that why didn't she do more? Why didn't they help Hassan, this man that had fallen and gotten tangled in the fixed ropes in the bottleneck on K2, pretty similar to what had happened with Jerry McDonald and the Taiwanese team several years ago. And she said that she did stop, that they did try to render aid, that the rest of his team had come. And so they thought that he would be taken care of. Well, she was singled out just like Mark Inglis was probably because she was a familiar face. You know, there were at least a hundred people on K2 this year. There were hundreds in 2006 but these were the faces that were singled out. This year on Mount Everest during the spring season, there were way more rescues than there normally is, probably because it was more possible than it has years before. It's so hard to fly up that high, but two guides, they chose to abandon their summit attempts and bring people down. Did they get the recognition that they they should have gotten? Probably not, Um, but they did what they could, they knew that they could do it and that's why they were successful. Could some random person do it? I don't know. And both of these rescue attempts were extremely risky, not only to the person that was in need of assistance, but also the guides that were helping them. 2013 was the year that the highest fistfight or the highest brawl, as people like to call it, happened on Mount Everest. There was a conflict between the rope fixing team and three climbers, Simone Morrow, Uli Steck, and Jonathan Griffith the rope fixing team they were on their way to camp three to fix the fixed ropes and this group of climbers were getting in the way so there was a conversation and the rope fixing team were like hey you know we have to fix the ropes the climbers were like oh well we're not going to bother you we're going somewhere else And so the rope-fixing team continued, yet these three climbers continued putting the rope-fixing team at risk because ice and rocks were coming down the mountain onto the rope-fixing team. The reason this team was fixing the ropes, it's their job. By doing this, it makes the mountain much safer. It also makes the mountain more accessible for people to reach the top. And since the late 90s, there has been a specific team that every year, it's their job to fix the ropes for everyone else. They're part of the Sagarmatha Pollution Control Committee. And for whatever reason, the rope fixing team and these three Mountaineers, there was an altercation. It was a physical altercation. There was also some swearing and there's two sides to every story. I'm not bringing it up because it was, you know, the highest fist fight in the world. I'm bringing it up because, and this is my opinion, because again, there's two sides to every story. I was not there, but, it shed a light on how Westerners treat those that work on the mountain, those high altitude porters from the Sherpa community, how there's a divide and how they're treated versus the Westerners. And so there were a lot of discussions about this, about how they are treated differently, how they are discriminated against and I tend to believe it was the Westerners that were brash and rude and disrespected the Sherpas, even though Moro, Steck and Griffith said that they felt threatened for their lives. I, I highly doubt that because the Nepali and specifically the Sherpa, they're a very peace loving community and they're not prone to violence or that brashness that Westerners are. Not trying to generalize. This is just my opinion. But 2013 definitely spotlighted the issues between the Westerners and the Sherpa community and did bring about some changes. 2014. Again, 2014 was a year that Nobody could have prospected what would happen. And like 2013, it kind of showed how the Sherpas are treated differently from the Westerners that climb Mount Everest. Two thirds of the fatalities on Mount Everest are those from the Sherpa and Nepali community. Their jobs are the most dangerous ones on Mount Everest because they're constantly going up and down those mountains, they traverse the Kumbu Icefall, sometimes two or three times more than the paying customer. And on April 18th, 2014, 16 of those high altitude porters were crushed by a Siroc, which is a big chunk of ice falling on them in the Kumbu Icefall. Back in 2012, Russell Bryce had halted his climbing expedition that year because he had concerns about an ice Siroc falling on his team members and his employees. And so he decided that he was just going to cancel the whole year. We'll fast forward to 2014 and look what happened. Here's the thing with 2014 because of it and because the high altitude porters in the Nepali and Sherpa community decided they were not going to continue climbing that year. They basically had a strike and they said, we want better conditions. The amount of money that they get paid, the amount of money that survivors get is so low, especially when you look at the amount of money that Western guides make and Western employees that are working on Mount Everest during the climbing season, it's kind of appalling. There is not equality at all between what the Westerners are paid and what the Sherpa community is. Things have gotten better since the strike in 2014. And since all of those deaths, it could be better. The question is, Is it as grim as what some people with the Western perspective think? I've talked about it multiple times with people. And if the Sherpa community is okay with what they're getting and they're okay with the treatment, regardless of what other people think, um, we need to respect their perspective. Would I be okay with only making $3,000 a year? no, I couldn't even live off of that in a month. However, in Nepal, that is a living wage. So my perspective could be a lot different than someone who is working on the mountain as a high altitude porter. The climbing season was halted that year, and they decided no one was going to summit. However, there was a woman from China that went ahead and, uh, climbed Mount Everest. Anyway, she circumvented the Kumbu ice fell and she was ridiculed across national media. So many people felt that she shouldn't have gotten credit for summiting because of all of those deaths and the fact that she disrespected all of those people dying by going ahead and trying, you know, summiting Mount Everest. To me, it's absolutely disgusting. Like, why would you do that? Especially when, as a collective, everyone decided to abandon their summit attempts that year um, and also to respect the Nepali community. She summited Uhu great. I think they should have withheld the certificate but that's my opinion. Even though Russell Bryce had foretold that a ice rack would fall to kill people in the Khumbu Icefall, I don't think anybody could have imagined what happened in 2015 at EBC. 22 people died that year. Now it was the most fatalities during an Everest season. However, it wasn't the most fatalities that had occurred on Mount Everest. And when we look at the fatalities, we look at the ones that occurred on the mountain. On April 25th, 2015, a 7.8 magnitude earthquake struck Nepal. I remember seeing it on the news and it affected all of the countries around Nepal. But what it did is it triggered an avalanche from, from Pomori into base camp and it killed at least 22 people. Depending on what, which list you look, there seems to be a 23rd person and sometimes only 21 people are counted on the lists. So the number that most people go with is 22 and 2014 had been just horrible because 16 people had died in the Khumbu ice fell, but 22 people at base camp, which base camp is considered safe for the most part. Uh, there had never really been any fatalities there, except, you know, people that had ultimately struggled with high altitude sickness and things like that. No one had died at EBC because of an avalanche or falling or anything like that. and. It was one of the worst years on Mount Everest at the time. People were caught at camp one and camp two. I interviewed Jim Davidson about it. You can uh, backtrack to last year if you want to listen to the interview, but it was just horrible. And in 2015, nobody summited Mount Everest. It was the first year since I believe 1956, or 1976, that there had been no summits. Several books have been made about it. There's a a documentary that the BBC did and a docu-series that Netflix did about the 2015 EBC avalanche disaster. 2019 was the year that the picture of the traffic jam on Mount Everest went viral on social media and the internet and it kind of exploded. So Nirmal Persia, also known as Nim's day from the Netflix documentary, 14 peaks. He's the one who took the picture and it just kind of blew up. And if you've never seen the picture, it's essentially a Congo line of people and their high altitude snow suits. One right after the other, and it's snaking up the entire Mount Everest as far as the eye can see from the viewpoint of the person who took the photo. And 2019, 11 people died in that spring season, and it started the conversation about overcrowding. Does overcrowding exist on Mount Everest? If so, is it a cause of death? Why are there so many people stuck in this line waiting for their summit attempt? So many controversies, so many conversations. And I think there's a lot of different reasons why there was this traffic jam. After you know, interviewing people who were there and people that have experience on Mount Everest, the weather window in 2019 was extremely short so everybody who could try to summit at the same time there's really only one way up and one way down unless you have experience not using the fixed rope and you're able to use your skills to circumvent the line there are people that have those skills but they're people who have a lot of experience that have been doing this for years and decades and know that Alpine style of mountaineering. The other reason, and a lot of people discuss this, was lack of experience, that these slower climbers that have no experience or, if any, maybe they have attempted one 8000 meter peak or none at all, were was slowing everybody else. Um, there were deaths that occurred during this Congo line. Did it happen because everyone was at a standstill or did it happen because of health reasons, high altitude sickness? And then that high amount of deaths, was it because there were just too many people? Because that had been a record year with the amount of permits that had been issued. I don't necessarily think that overcrowding is a problem. As I've mentioned before, I think that the death toll on Mount Everest absolutely could be prevented. And a lot of it has to do with these expedition companies, how much experience they have, if they know how to guide, and what they promised their clients, because most of those deaths, if they had a really good guide, probably would have been prevented. But that's a conversation for another day. 2020 was the year of COVID and it was the year that no one really knew what was going on. All of these people had their Everest trips planned, and then COVID happened. Some people think that there were no Everest summits that year, but there were actually 11. It was a Chinese science team that summited from the north side, 11 of them total, and they were the only ones to summit Mount Everest in the year of 2020. So all of these people that, you know, had their trip canceled, you know, and they had for years because you don't just decide, you don't just wake up and decide, Hey, I'm climbing Mount Everest tomorrow. Some of these people have planned for years to summit Mount Everest. A lot of them turned to Everesting, which instead of summoning Mount Everest, they climbed in quotes in their living rooms. uh, They hiked, they backpacked elsewhere. So they did like a virtual climb of Mount Everest. Uh, Many of them who had their trips canceled in 2020 would in 2021 uh, go for their summit bid. And number 10 on the list of historical events and expeditions that have shaped Mount Everest is 2023 the spring 2023 everest spring season led to a total of 17 deaths it was the most fatal season ever and fatal year because the fall season's not over yet on mount everest in 2014 we had the 16 deaths in the kumbu ice fall in 2015, we had the 22 deaths that occurred at EBC. They did not occur on the mountain. So most people are not considering them deaths on Mount Everest. But this year, a total of 17 people took their last breath on Mount Everest. Talking to people who have been there this year, there were a lot of contributing factors. And these weren't all newbies to climbing, right? Some of them had lots of experience. Some of the things that contributed this year to deaths on Mount Everest was it was super cold. It was negative 40. Most people will tell you it never gets that cold. Um, Overcrowding does not appear to have been an issue. Inexperience yes and unfortunately some of the deaths on Mount Everest this year they were with expedition companies that left them behind. Very unfortunate and it's not something that anyone has talked about previously about expedition companies abandoning their clients on the mountain but that's what happened. Some of the other things that you, that I've been told, um, lack of acclimatization might have been a factor to some of the deaths and, um, being sick with COVID, but those are all speculation. There's really nothing proven and it's just, you know, people talking 17 people total That. That's just crazy and I go back to my conversation that I had with Adrian Bollinger and he basically said and I this is my opinion as well that most of these deaths could be prevented that if you have a good operator if you have good guides if you have reputable expedition company there should be no deaths. And Adrian learned that from Russell Bryce. He worked under him for many years and that's what I'm going to go with is that all of these deaths, most of them could have been prevented. When it comes to altitude sickness, that's just something that you can't really predict because it could be someone that has, you know, been on 8,000 meters before and then Somehow, when they're on Mount Everest, that's the time that it affects them the most, causing their death. And that is it for today's episode. Next episode, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I think I'm going to address readers' emails. You guys send me some amazing questions. And so that's what next episode is going to be, is I'm going to answer some of the questions that you guys have sent in. I appreciate all of you for listening. I absolutely love doing this podcast. And thank you so much for all the love that you give me every single week. Until next time, climb your own climb. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the All About Everest podcast. We would love it if you would rate, subscribe, and follow wherever you listen to your podcast. You can find us on social media at All About Everest Podcast or at Mama Bear Outdoors. You can support our podcast by subscribing to our Patreon or by buying us a coffee. Until next time.